are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Emotive, kaleidoscopic, frenetic. Anthony Joseph Landman is a composer, performer, podcaster, listener, and storyteller. He's fortunate enough to have had music commissioned and performed and is grateful to all that have done so. He's had his music played more than 700,000 times on SoundCloud to fans all over the world. He also works in IT. Start. So, uh, welcome to the podcast. I mean, you know, it's been a long time coming, but uh, you've you've had you've had a bunch of uh, a bunch of adjective uh, people on on one track, and and you've got your new one coming out. We're going to talk about that stuff later, but we're going to look at three of uh, your pieces tonight. And I wanted to start off with Sonata Forty Six for violin and guitar. So. Kind of tell us the story about how this piece came about. You wrote it for Duo 46. Who are they and yeah. how did you get connected to them? Well, this is one of my um, earliest pieces. So this is from uh, my sophomore year Oh man! Uh, when I was going to the University of Texas. And um, Duo 46 had only been together a couple of years at that point. And uh, I, they were friends of mine. They were at... Uh, at the university of Texas at the same time I was the guitarist, Matt Gould was uh, doing his doctorate there. And then his partner, Beth Schneider, um, was a, you know, an amazing violinist and she wasn't a student, but, uh, she was at the time, I think playing in the San Antonio symphony. Awesome. I think, but, uh, and, uh, by the way, if anybody's ever, uh, been lucky enough to go to the concert hall in San Antonio. It's amazing. I have. It you've is been, amazing. You've been there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, my friend, uh, my best friend Steve Bachicha, his girlfriend at the time was playing horn for the uh, oh, for the nice. San Antonio Symphony. So we went and saw uh, a concert there. It's incredible. I mean, it's just like yeah, yeah. It really is. Yeah. Um, it's got like that whole um, south southwest theme but it's like a yeah i don't know how would you describe it it's really hard to describe yeah it's like uh really colorful as i remember yes um and it's very it's like yeah it is hard to describe i i i just have a visual memory of it but i can't like you know i don't know enough about architecture or anything to to talk about it but it's just incredible go for the for the listener go youtube it i mean they're Pictures yeah. are better than us describing it. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, like, I can't remember what the exterior looks like, but I think we're both talking about the interior. The interior like, just is looks amazing. Yeah. 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 But uh, yeah, anyway, yeah, Duo 46, um, I-, I would just hang out with them. And I, again, I was a, a very young composer just starting out at the time. And uh, they just said, you know, hey, why don't you write us a piece? And um I said, oh, okay. They, I mean, technically it was like my first commission. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, even though there was no money, you know, it was like they, it was the first time someone had asked me to write a piece for them. And uh, yeah. And, and it, it, it's really become one of my most played pieces. I mean, it's been played hundreds of times. I mean, mm-hmm. the dual 46 played it um, all over, you know, all over the world. And uh I don't know, 10, maybe 10 or so other duos have played it. And it's been in a, now being played in a 
flute and guitar duo uh, version as well. So, Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, well that's, that's really interesting that a flute and guitar version are now being done because the first little line of this, the returns, uh, quite often over the course of the piece, where, where does that, where does that music come from? You, you're, you're looking like, you know, I do know, <laughs> but they don't he has a know. look on his face. Like he knows. Um, so yeah, when I, so again, I was a sophomore. I didn't know what I was doing. You know, no, I, no, no, no clue what I was doing. And, um, they, they wanted a piece and I knew I wanted to write something really virtuosic. Maybe that could be like a concert opener or a closer, you know, cause they were great players. And I didn't know how to start, you know, so I stole from myself. I, I always a good technique. This, uh, yeah, I'd written this flute solo called the five rings of Miyamoto Musashi previously. And, um, there was this lick in the second movement called fire scroll that I lifted. And that became the first lick that you hear in a Sonata 46. Yeah. So it's interesting that it made it, it, it made it all the way back to flute. I know. <laughs> in this new version. <laughs> yeah. It started with flute. Yeah. And now it's made it all the way back to flute. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm curious about the indication in the score for the ending section, waltzing in purgatory. Where did that come from? I don't know. You know, I, and it's, it's in four, you know, and yeah. obviously a waltz is in three. Um, it just had a real sort of dance like quality to me, mm-hmm. but also kind of, um, I don't know, kind of, kind of sinister and off a little bit. Sure. And, uh, and at the time I just, I guess I just thought it was cool to, to, to put that. Right. Right. I don't know. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's it. <laughs> that's fine. Um, so I wouldn't call myself a guitarist, but I can play the guitar. I've only written for it, uh, once, and when I did, I felt like I was way outside of my comfort zone. Um, so I'm curious, like as a as a guitarist and a composer who writes for the instrument, what advice do you have out there for other composers who, like me, are completely intimidated by the guitar? Yeah, I mean, it's really. I mean, I, I know this is easy for me to say, but it is pretty simple. Basically, you write what you want to write and work with a guitarist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I obviously try to learn about the guitar, you know, because if you write for the guitar, like it's a piano and then you give it to a guitarist, you'll quickly find out that, you know, a bunch of stuff that you wrote is not possible. You know, those, to be played. Uh, those stacked third triads aren't exactly no the easiest stacked thing in the thirds. World. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> stacked thirds bad. Um, flat keys are. I mean, you know, they're possible, but um, they're not as resonant on the sure. guitar. Guitar, just like any string instrument, favors sharps. And uh, really keep those open strings in your mind. <laughs> yeah, can, seriously. Yeah, I think, yeah, uh, yeah I, I think that is the, that's the biggest thing, you know, the one, the one time I wrote it, I, I had to keep telling myself, like, these big open chords that's what you got to do because if you think about it, you know, you've just got fourths going all up 
all, all up the strings and it's like, yeah, third, uh, third suck, you know? And I mean, like I was able to at least kind of play through things slowly, but yeah, it just, that I think the yeah. other thing that gets me about the instrument, I mean, to a certain extent, you know, with violin and cello and everything, you know, you, you have several places on the neck where you can play things, but with guitar, you have, so many places where you can play the same thing, yes. you know, and then, yeah. and then it's really about like, you know, you have to have that, that intimate relationship with the instrument to, to even know like, well, if I'm trying to li- write this lick here, it's going to be really awkward. But if I'm trying to write this lick up here, it's going to be okay. You know? So, oh my God, it's just terrifies me to write for it. Yeah. <laughs> And I play the yeah. damn thing. That's that's the that's the crazy part. <laughs> like, I mean, I, yeah, yeah. It, it is. I mean, it is intimidating, and there is a lot of different places, you know, where you can play the exact same pitch, like you said. Mm-hmm. But if you get familiar enough with it, you can really orchestrate on guitar, and you can make a lot of really interesting voicings, you know, chord yeah. voicings playing things, you know, certain notes higher up on certain strings, then sort of mixing that with open strings um, or even harmonics. You know, you could, Mm -hmm. you could mix fretted notes and open strings and harmonics on the same chord and uh, get some, you know, pretty cool voicings going on. Yeah. Now for your, for your pieces that you've written with guitar, do you ever kind of mess with alternate tunings or you just straight up um, regular? I have. Yeah, I have. Yeah. Um, I do have one um, suite of solo pieces called Sumie dances that um, have a sort of, uh, yeah, they use an alternate tuning. And um, the, the most common thing for classical guitar is to tune the sixth string from E to D. You know, that's a very, very common uh-huh. um, uh, alternate tuning. Uh, and this piece, Sonata 46, is actually in an alternate tuning for the guitar. It's it, Bizarrely, it's in Renaissance lute tuning. So basically, you uh, take the third string, which is G, and then you tune it down a half step to F sharp. And uh, that is that is how a Renaissance lute was tuned. Uh, not pitch-wise. If you, uh, you know, it, to get the right pitch, you'd have to put a capo on the third fret. Um, right, because yeah. the lowest string on a lute was a G, but, um, yeah, I was just at the time I was playing a lot of uh, John Doland and I thought the, uh, tuning was cool. And so, yeah, this piece uses an alternate tuning. Yeah. Oh man. I'm, t- I'm, I'm thinking about how that would affect like basically everything you do on guitar. Yeah. Like, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, uh, tuning strings, by a step or a half step is really so common in guitar music mm-hmm. that, you know, when you do it for like cello or something like in the Kodai Sonata or something, there's like two staves, you know, mm-hmm. there's like a scordatura stave and then an actual pit or, you know, yeah, actual pitch and, right. and what they would normally see in guitar music. It's not, you don't ever see that it's just written. And, you know, the guitar just has to, to adapt you know, yeah. to, you know, with the fingers changing. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking because I mean, you're, re- you're reading just normal notation. I mean, if you, if you put like, uh, 
you know, tab or something up there. Oh, yeah, this is easy. Alternate tune. But I mean, you're reading normal notation. So you have to make right. you have to like make that. Oh, I have to transpose on this uh, on this string or whatever. You know what I'd normally yes. be playing. Wow. Oy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, what uh, you know, this that you you call it Sonata. Um I mean, is it, does it have some relation to Sonata form or is it just like, this is, this is a, a duo and kind of a solo with the violin? It's more related to like a Scarlatti Sonata. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so definitely not the, the big grandiose 19th century Sonata, but um, it, it is in a kind of overall ABA kind of form. Um, and again, at the time it was just like this piece that was just chock full of all this stuff that I was learning. Mm-hmm. You know, the end is kind of Piazzolla. I was like playing Piazzolla. The, the overall form is kind of Scarlatti. I was playing Scarlatti. Um, and uh, it's just kind of a kitchen sink of all this stuff I was, I was doing and learning, you know, at that time. So I mean, you, you have for, for this piece, but I mean, for, for a lot of your pieces, you have just some incredible, uh, listen numbers on SoundCloud. Um, what do you, what do you attribute to this ability to getting your music out there and getting it heard? It's a total, it's a really a mystery. Um, as you know, you will find, even if you talk to like, um, some YouTubers, you know, that have really taken off and for, for whatever reason, speaking of YouTube, um, the, the mysterious algorithm has decided to push one of their videos and it blew up and then their channel blew up. Um, and yeah, so that I don't know, I, I, to be honest, I really don't know. I mean, um, I've had my music, shared and put on playlists and things Uh like this. And I guess this helped drive people there. Yeah. Um, But when it first started happening, I I just, I thought it was, uh, I I thought it was a mistake. I I thought (laughs) I'd been hacked and the bots, (laughs) you know, the bots got me. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I, I, again, yeah, I thought it was like maybe bots or like, I was like, what is going on? And, um, it's just kind of stayed that way. Um, and it, and in fact, now this is like crazy. I'm now, um, uh, Oh, what do they call that? Uh, where you have the blue check mark next to your name, like on Twitter. Is that like certified or something or, or verified, verified, verified. Yeah. I think it's verified. Yeah. So I'm now verified on SoundCloud, which has pushed my <laughs> numbers even higher. And so, um, you know, I'll, I'm, I mean, I'm pretty confident that I'm going to hit a million plays. Like it's crazy. Yeah. yeah. That, that That's, I mean, that's awesome. You know, that's incredible. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's been, it's been nice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So on, uh, on this recording of uh, Sonata 46, who are we going to hear? So this is a duo from Poland. Um, called the Hanashevska, uh, um, I think I'm saying that right, Hanashevska-Kandelski duo. Um, and, 
Yeah, this is, uh, I think this is probably my favorite recording uh, so far that I've heard. And they just took this and, um, you know, they just play it blazingly fast, faster even than I have it marked in the score. Mm-hmm. Because when I originally wrote this, I, I put like the highest like dream tempo that I thought, well, <laughs> no one's ever going to be able to play it even this fast, but I'll just put it here. And they just blow like right past that. <laughs> Um, so yeah, they're, they're amazing players. I mean, it's like that thing of, you know, like, oh, well, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to write it, you know, super, super fast. And then, uh, and then, you know, you've got like, uh, or, or like, uh, I wrote this as a, as a virtuoso showpiece back in the 1800s and now in the 2000s, like high schoolers (laughs) are playing it or something. You had that like within just a couple of years. That's awesome. Um, All right, so let's listen to it now. This is Sonata 46.
frequent listeners of your podcast, One Track, will have recognized that piece very well as it is oh, kind yeah, of yeah. the opening music to your to your podcast, One Track. Um, so let's talk about One Track a little bit. You, when did you start One Track and what was kind of the driving force behind starting that podcast? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I started it in, uh, 2017, uh, just January 1st, 2017. And, uh, I had done two podcasts before that in 2010, I did a podcast called all the cool parts. And then a few years later, I did a podcast called 1000 recordings podcast. Um, and those were both going on sort of concurrently, but, uh, I had to stop doing them because they were so time consuming. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just, I, you know, I, I originally started podcasting because, you know, I, I graduated with my doctorate in 2008 and I had spent two years looking for an academic job and just wasn't getting anywhere. And I just thought to myself, you know, if no one is going to give me the chance to teach, I'm just going to do it myself. Uh-huh. So that's when I started all the cool parts <laughs> and, uh, I just felt like I just, you know, I just needed an outlet, you know, some, to do something. But like I said, those were like preparing for hardcore lectures. I mean, they took, you know, hours yeah. and hours of preparation and research and stuff. I just got to the point in my life where I was just like, I don't have, I don't have time for this. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I really wanted to keep podcasting and I wanted to do something that would make an impact in our you know, community that we have. Mm-hmm. And then finally, I just hit on this idea of one track where we talk about one piece of music. It's, it's sort of meant to be like the composers, um, you know, what they consider to be one of their, you know, one of their best or one of their seminal pieces or whatever. And we talk about it. And the great thing is the way that it's designed <laughs> and any for anybody wanting to podcast, this is and I I know you know this uh, all too well, is that um, designing your podcast so it's actually feasible to do, you know, t- with within you know your time limits of your life is really important because if you uh, do something that is just too big and too ambitious, it's not going to last because you just yep. you know. You can't fit it into your life. So I, I figured out this formula with one track where I had to do, you know, relatively little uh, preparation and it's mostly the guests talking, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you, if you think about, if you listen to one track and you really think about it, really the, uh, most of the onus is on the guest. Very true. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so I, I, I came up with this formula that I can actually do, you know, and it, it can actually be sustained, you know? So, yeah, yeah, that, that sustainability is, is so important because, you know, I've, I've talked to other, especially like in the, in the music, um, in the music world, other podcasters who, you know, they did a ton of editing and they were trying to, make their show kind of like radio lab or, or something yes, like yes. that. 
and you know had all the transitions all the background tracks all the little pauses and, and, and you know all the sound design and stuff like that you know I, I talked to one one time and they were like yeah so that 30 minute episode I called that down from four hours of recording and I'm like what <laughs> oh my god what oh my god <laughs> like that that's just yeah that that's well, it's not gonna ha- it's not gonna happen here. I can tell you that much. <laughs> right. Like. Yeah. Well, exactly. And the thing is, like, you know, I have a, a really uh, good friend named Matthew Cochran. He's a guitarist. He's the guitar teacher at Interlochen now. Oh, but yeah. um, okay. when I first met him, he was kind of in between jobs and stuff, and he started this podcast called Goes to Eleven, which is like about the guitar and. It was an amazing podcast. I mean, really, really done well. And not just classical guitar, you know, guitarist of, of, you know, all genres. And it was edited like an NPR show. It sounded so fantastic. I was just so jealous. But again, just like you were saying, he just, it couldn't be sustained. Yeah. It was was too much. Yeah. Yeah. And Yeah. uh, yeah, I mean, the, the only, the only way we've, made it to i mean in this run of this season we will get to oh i don't know probably 165 or something like that um nice uh the the only reason we've been able to do that is because you know and of course over the years it's gotten easier and easier you know the uh the the like the setup like you you get better as an interviewer and you get better as an editor and and, and all that stuff, but keeping it manageable, keeping it within, you know, like, okay, I'll take this amount of time to prep. I'll take the amount of time for the show and this amount of time to edit. And yeah, it, uh, the sustainability is the only way because I've had, some, you know, there are some uh, new music podcasts out there that I would love if they were still uh, running. Like the very first one I ever heard um, was called Composer Conversations. And it was by by this guy living in Germany and interviewing these amazing composers like coming through for, uh, you know, uh, the, the various festivals. And um, and it, it, it was it could totally be sustained. I don't know why he stopped doing it, but he stopped doing it. I don't even think you can find it anymore. Um, I have. Wow. I, I, I never. Yeah, I never, I never heard that one. Yeah, like it, it introduced me to composers like uh, Ashley Fury and Kate Soper and Clara Iannata and all these like incredible composers that I had no idea about. And um, it, it, like it's called Composer Conversations, and it's, it's just literally that. It was just them talking. They played one piece in the middle of the conversation, and it was, it was just that, and it was incredible because it was like. It was no bullshit, you know, it was, it was just like, let's get to the music. Let's talk about that, that stuff, which is, which is so important. So anyway, yeah, if you can find it out there somewhere, Composer Conversations, it's, it's awesome, but yeah, I'll look for it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's on iTunes anymore or anything, but I, weirdly enough, I had some of the episodes saved, so I still have some of them. So if you can't find it, let me know. I'll, I'll, I'll send them your way how many how many yeah, episodes yeah. how many episodes have you done on one on uh, one track uh we're in season 12 now and uh i think when we get done with season 12 we'll be at 148 yeah so yeah 
Yeah, because we we started Lexical in I want to say in tw- like mid twenty sixteen, and we've definitely like taken various time time off, so we're kind of running pretty pretty concurrently with each other. Um, you've had, like I said before, you've had a bunch of the adjective new uh, new music composers on, uh, myself included, for which we you know we thank you. Um, you're starting a new podcast. Yeah. What's it called, and what is the premise behind it? It's called um, "This One Time at Bandcamp," and uh, it's it's just people coming on. Again, this one is even like more on the like this one. I don't have to do uh, like jack shit for like right. I just show up, push the record button, and like that's it. And um, you basically it's just, just get coming the, on, get the guest on, and you're like, "All right, what you got?" <laughs> That's it. I was like, all right, tell me your story. That's per- and that's perfect. Um, they come on, they uh, tell me a story from the world of, of music and um, everybody in the world of music. If you've spent years of your life in the world of music and trying to make music and just, you know, just doing it, whatever that, whatever it is that you do, you have stories, you have like oh, stories, yeah. plural, yeah. yeah, everybody has their stories. And um, what I'm just trying to do is just capture these stories and uh, just get people to open up a little bit and um, tell, and they can be stories about anything. You know, they could mm-hmm. be funny stories. They could be tragic stories or, or anything in between. And uh, that's one thing, you know, I'm trying to get people to to tell their stories, to open up, to not be so worried. I mean, of course you have to be worried about this um, to some degree, but to not be so worried about, Oh, you know um, I might offend this person in power and mm-hmm. you know, that might affect my career or something. And of course I wouldn't want anybody to jeopardize their career, but I just want, especially people in the classical music world to just open up and tell their stories. That's it. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing uh, hearing other people's stories. That's that's awesome. So, uh, <laughs> let's let's go on to your piece of Viridian Soliloquy. So this is for soprano sax and eight string guitar. So can you explain mm-hmm. the difference between uh, in playing an eight string guitar versus the standard like classical guitar that we just heard on Sonata Forty Six? Well, um, it's a big difference. I mean, this is an eight string electric guitar and, uh, you know, it's a huge difference from a classical guitar. Uh, first of all, this particular guitar has multi-scale or they call it fanned fretting. Mm. Um, so basically the, um, the highest string is a shorter scale than the lowest string. And so the frets are sort of you know, there's a sort of midpoint and then they sort of fan out, you know, um, so they look sort of uh, slanted, if that well, makes sense. Yeah, I've, I've definitely seen some some guitars like that in the past. Uh, what what's the purpose of of the frets being angled like that? Well, so it, it's scale. So basically, when you add when you start adding strings um, especially low strings, you start adding uh-huh. bigger strings to the guitar. They start, and, and it's all the same scale length, like the neck, the strings are all the same length. Right. Uh, those strings get 
real floppy and that got real low tension. It's just like a piano or a harp, you know, the string right. length on, on those strings, the high strings is real small and the string string length for the low strings is very long. Okay. And uh, it's the same principle, you know, just, just on a guitar. It's interesting because it's not new technology. This was used <laughs> in the Renaissance period on an instrument called the Orpharion, which was like a wire strung lute. Huh. And it had multi-scale fretting. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So on this this guitar, this has two strings added to the bottom of it? Yes. Yeah, two strings. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I usually have them like seventh string at B, um, eighth string at E. So it actually goes as low as an electric, a typical four-string electric bass. Um, but it's not really standardized. So there's a lot of pieces that I use, uh, you know, different tunings for Mm -hmm. that. Um, yeah. Viridian soliloquy is E and B. Yeah. But I think the piece we're going to listen to after that is different. So, okay. Yeah. So, uh, in the notes, I learned that, uh, you have synesthesia, can you speak about that and how it relates to this piece? Yeah. Um, so yeah, this, this was something I, I kept to myself for a long, long time. Um, <laughs> I can tell you the, the moment, the earliest moment that I remember. So, and this is, this is going to be funny, but I was probably four maybe. Mm-hmm. And, um, my parents had taken me to see the original Muppet movie. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And there's this scene. I think it's at the beginning. It's been a long time since I've seen it where they're like all in this theater watching a film. And then the film gets like, um, basically like melt starts melting against the projector bulb. And like the soundtrack starts going crazy. And I, just lost it. I mean, I, I was, I was terrified. Uh I started screaming like in the theater. My parents were like, what the hell is like with this kid? Um, (laughs) and, uh, but yeah, I, I kept it to myself for a long time. Um, but yeah, I have this sort of, um, sound to color and color to sound. And, uh, I started making these soliloquy pieces, you know, based on colors and so there's cerulean soliloquy that's for flute and piano and then i wrote one that'll probably never be performed ever again it called obsidian soliloquy that was for symbolom and theorbo oh my god and yeah yeah yeah. um you can do shit like that when you go to like a completely unreal place like indiana university yeah and then um (laughs) And then this one, Viridian Soliloquy, which was originally for harp and uh, and saxophone, soprano saxophone. And uh, when I was teach, I briefly taught at Indiana State University, and the sax professor there um, saw this piece and said, "Hey, why don't we do this piece?" And I said, "Well, it's for harp." And he said, "Well, yeah, I mean, can't you make the harp part for guitar?" <laughs> so I did. This yeah, is just, actually just a transcription that. The, that I did from the harp part to eight-string electric guitar. So yeah. I mean, what was that process like of of uh, changing harp to guitar? I mean, you know, how, did you did you have to change the way things 
kind of laid? Like, was it, was it? Oh yeah. 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 I mean, um, not as much as you would think, but, uh, I did have to change quite a bit, especially in the middle section when, um, in the guitar part, you know, it gets the, the tone gets distorted and it's sort of very metal kind of section. It's really not that way at all in the harp version sure. and the harp version is really cool. Cause it has these like sort of cool glissandi, like real fast glissandi going on and stuff. But obviously you just can't do that on guitar. So it was a nice uh, exercise, you know, in how do I make this work, you know, for this instrument? Yeah. So it, it it's almost in a way like you have um, like kind of version A and version B. It's not just a pure transcription of uh, of the of the one. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, some of it just had to be the sax part is pretty much unchanged, mm-hmm. but um, the guitar part. Yeah, some of it did have to be almost recomposed. You know, to really to not just because I didn't want it to just you know, work on guitar. I wanted it to sound like it was written for guitar in the first yeah. place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that exactly. was kind of an extra, you know, layer of pressure that I put on myself, but mm-hmm. yeah. When you, when you're composing, I mean, you can, I, I suppose you could answer this for a piece that you're composing that has guitar in it and pieces that you compose that don't have guitar in it. I mean, guitar is your primary instrument. Um, do you use that when you're composing or do you use the piano or or nothing? Or like, how does that work? I don't use the piano because um, I, I don't, I actually, I don't even have, I don't even like own a keyboard uh-huh. or, or a MIDI controller or I don't own any <laughs> anything like that. Um, so when I'm composing, usually... Um, I just have my guitar next to me mm-hmm. and, uh, and then I'll have, uh, like a stand with like, uh, a staff, like, you know, a staff notebook on it. And then I'll have finale open in front of me. And a lot of it I'm just doing in my head. And then when I need to figure something out, sometimes I'll pick up the guitar if I need, cause I don't have perfect pitch. So, um, sometimes I'll just pick up the guitar to, to figure out some, uh, some pitches and stuff like that. But uh, that is pretty much how I how I do it. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I was I was thinking about that. Uh, I, I remember I was I was in a bar uh, one time and there was. Uh, we have a somewhat famous uh, guitarist living in Athens, uh, not only guitarist, but also guitar like maker um, in Athens. And um I was in a bar and I was sitting at this table with a bunch of other musicians and, and he was there and he was talking, he was talking to me and I was like, yeah, like I'm, I'm uh, recently I've kind of got, gotten the guitar out again and you know, I'm just kind of playing through some stuff. And he was like, Oh, Oh my God, you should, you should come study with me. You know, I could, you know, you're a composer. You could be, you could be using the guitar to compose your music. And I was like, yeah, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> it was it was just kind of like look i'm i'm x x number of years old and i've been composing for another x number of years like i i i don't see a reason to really change up my methods at this point like well, and, sure, and, the, th- yeah, and yeah. the thing is like as a percussionist 
you know, I my piano skills are shit, but I can still like make it around uh, enough, sure, sure. enough to compose at least. But I, I couldn't even imagine like using the guitar. But you know, it's not really my my primary instrument anyway. Well, I mean, that's what I did from the beginning. I mean, you know, I started writing music when I was about fifteen. You know, for my rock band or my yeah. metal band or whatever. <laughs> and that's how I, you know, and I didn't, I didn't know anything at the time. I didn't know how to read music and I didn't know any music theory and I didn't know anything, you know, so that's just what I did to write music. And, uh, I did that all the way till I was like 23. That that's when I went to school when I was 23. Mm-hmm. And when I went, entered school at 23, um, I had spent like the previous year teaching myself to read music. So I, I could still barely read. I, I could not tell you what pitches were in a C major chord. I mean, I didn't know anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's just sort of, yeah, that's just what I had been doing yeah. for, for so long. Yeah. With your, with your rock band in high school, I'm just, I'm just curious. Uh, did you, uh, were, was it all originals or were you doing covers? Well, we, uh, we, uh, we did all originals, but our first few gigs, we like, um, we, we threw some covers in there yeah, and I remember point? our, our very first gig and I was probably 17 or something. It was at this place in Houston called the pick and pack. It was like this bar. Right. And I remember we played one of the covers we played was, um, war pigs by uh, black Sabbath. <sighs> yeah. Uh-huh. And there was this dude, you know, of course there was like this super drunk guy there Always just is. going nuts, you know, and and then and uh he noticed that our drummer, like his drum kept creeping forward because he was just he was playing too hard uh-huh. and he kept having to pull it back. So this guy like got down and crouched like in front of his bass drum and held his his <laughs> drum kit, kit there and kept it from moving, like while we played, <laughs> and we were just like because he just did it. He just walked up in the middle of the song and just crouched down. We're like, okay. And, <laughs> and don't then worry, I don't worry, end, boys. I got this. <laughs> yeah. And at the end of the gig, they, uh, <laughs> they couldn't give us any alcohol, right? Cause we were yeah. all underage. So our payment was, they gave us two cases of Coke in the glass bottles on the condition that we bring back the bottles. <laughs> So, <laughs> so that was our payment. <laughs> and of course we were teenagers. We were like, Oh hell yeah. You know, we'll take, yeah, we'll bring it back. So, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. The band I used to have in high school. I mean, we definitely did Iron Man. Um, you know, as, as you do, um, what else? Do we, I mean, we, you know, name a Metallica song. We probably did it. Oh yeah, yeah, we did that too. Yeah. 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 Cool. Well, let's uh let's listen to this. So, um this recording of Viridian Soliloquy, who are we going to hear? Uh so this is me on the guitar and this is uh Paul Bro on uh saxophone. So this is Viridian Soliloquy. <laughs> Thank you. 
cool. So let's get to your last piece. This is called Rush. And also for eight-string electric guitar, electric cello, accordion, and alto saxophone. Um, how did that instrumentation come about? <laughs> I know, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> so this came about uh, when I was still uh, over in Terre Haute, Indiana. Um, and I had taught at Indiana State University but this was after I taught there. But I, you know, I made some good friends, you know, on the faculty and stuff. And I played on this um, Astor Piazzolla concert, okay, where <laughs> where that we did this version of his Histoire du Tango, which originally for guitar and flute. And um, I did these arrangements of each movement. So I did the first one was um, uh, guitar and saxophone. The second one was guitar and cello. The third one, I flipped it around. So I played the flute part on electric guitar and the accordion played the guitar part. Uh And then for the final movement, I arranged it for all four of those instruments. And uh, it just, I don't know. We just had such a good time doing it. And it ended up being such a cool combination that I was just like, hey, you know, would you guys be into me writing a piece for this combination. Uh-huh. And they're like, yeah, you know, sure. That would be fun. So, um, that's how it happened. Yeah. I'm, um, I'm curious about the use of the electric cello versus an acoustic cello. So was, was it that you just had to, uh, the ability to amplify the cello or, or was it the idea that you might be able to add effects to it like what was the choice of using the electric versus acoustic so that grew out of just working with the musicians okay. and uh, the, i should mention the musicians here are uh, kurt fowler on cello and ted pachinski on accordion and then again paul bro on saxophone and um originally when we first started working this out and rehearsing it you know kurt was just playing his normal cello his normal acoustic cello But, you know, with the electric guitar part, Kurt says, you know, I have an electric cello and I never get to use it. And he's like, (laughs) what would you think about me using it? I said, I don't know. You know, why don't you bring it to rehearsal next time and we'll try it out. So then I start thinking, okay, well, he's bringing this electric cello. Like, what can I do with it? And um, (laughs) again, this is kind of a funny story, but um, years ago, somebody gave me this um, distortion pedal called metal zone it was a boss metal zone yeah now let me say right off this is widely regarded as one of the worst pedals ever made for guitar it's it's like (laughs) it's like notoriously bad and um i didn't want it i wasn't using it so i was like i wonder how this metal zone will sound on the cello or on the electric cello it sounded amazing (laughs) (laughs) Little did Boss know that they were making I the know. perfect pedal for an electric cello. <laughs> yeah. So we got to the rehearsal and he had his cello and I was like, you know, I'm thinking about putting distortion on the cello in like these two sections. And I want you to try this pedal. And he looked at it. He's like, metal zone. This is a classical player, you know? Yeah. And I was like, yeah. I was like, just, you know, it's a distortion pedal. And uh, so we set it up and it, he turned it on. I was like, Oh my God, it's like, it's like a different pedal. Like, yeah. so, and he loved it. So I just gave him the pedal and, um, 
that's that's how that happened. And we ended up doing those sections uh, distorted. Yeah, on the cello. <laughs> that's it. That's so cool. I wonder if it's I wonder if it's because the cello isn't going to uh, represent so many of those high like what. I, I I know I know the pedal you're talking about. What was so bad about it? Is it because it's like really like fried eggy, like really hissy and stuff? Or yes, yes, and um, it's it, it was. I don't know how Boss achieved this, but the the pedal had six dials to dial in tone, oh, and no man. matter how you turned those dials and in what combination, your tone was shit. Yeah, like that. I don't know how they achieved that. <laughs> It's a Just really amazing achievement in itself, but stroke uh, I, of I idiotic I, genius. I, I, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know why it sounded so good on his cello because the frequency range of the cello and the guitar aren't that different, right? And I don't know if it was because of the sustained tone with the bow, or I really don't know, but yeah, yeah. I was just thinking maybe like on the cello, you're, you're. Be, uh, maybe because of the strings or something, you're not representing so many of the high harmonics to get to like engage the distortion in that way. But well, I mean, that's maybe. awesome that it, uh, that it sounds good on electric cello. <laughs> um, in- yeah. If you're, a, if you're a cellist out there and you're looking for a cool distortion, I, I guarantee you there's a shitload of metal zones on eBay being sold for like five to $10 right now. <laughs> <laughs> Go pick one up and be badass. Yeah. <laughs> um, in your program notes, you say that uh, you say that this is a kind of uh, fusion of your past musical experience, uh, like uh, progressive rock, Renaissance performance, playing Steve Reich in chamber orchestra. I mean, I definitely get the progressive rock and and the Steve Reich. How does the like the, how does the older like Baroque and Renaissance? music kind of factor into this piece? Well, it factors in, um, it's, it's less easy to hear, but, uh, the Baroque part factors into all the imitative counterpoint that's in the piece. Okay. And then, um, the Renaissance part comes about from, so, so let me back up. Like the whole reason I got this guitar back in 2003, I commissioned this guitar from this guy named Chris Versaghi in Austin and back then, eight-string guitars were still pretty rare. Uh, they're a lot more common now. But uh, the reason I wanted an eight-string guitar was because I actually studied eight-course lute at oh. uh, Indiana University. I oh. studied for three years where I was playing nothing but uh, Renaissance lute. Yeah. And I, I wanted to go back to the guitar because I felt like that's where my real home was. But I didn't want to lose <laughs> the extra strings that I was now used to. Um, so that really informed how I play this eight string electric, you know, funding, funnily enough that, uh, experience playing lute and learning lute technique and, uh, really, uh, really changed how I approach playing this eight string electric. Yeah. So a lot of that is, is in there. Yeah. I mean, this the the piece definitely has like um you know as i said i could definitely hear the steve the steve reich kind of vibe to it um and actually my first like huge musical influence was steve reich my my whole 
my whole nice. musical world like kind of totally opened up the first time I heard the piece uh, City Life in my theory yes. that my theory four course at at Bowling Green. It, it mean, was in that book, right? Yeah, it was it uh um uh, Costco and Payne. That's where I heard it. Yes, that's where I heard it too for the first time. Yeah. 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 Yep. I remember um with uh, at at Bowling Green Theory Four with Bill Lake, um, we we did uh piano phase and and then we did City Life. And uh like I, I thought like, oh shit, piano phase, that's that's really cool, but you know, it's kind of it's a little gimmicky or whatever, but um, but then we did City Life, and it's that you know it's got that interlocking the interlocking patterns that he was so famous for, and then all yeah. of a sudden, like I don't know, two three minutes in, it comes in with that big chord progression, like this slow moving chord progression. I don't know what it was about it; it blew my mind, and I think it was because, you know, coming up. Uh, having this kind of dual life as like playing, you know, playing guitar and singing in a rock band versus like studying uh, piano and classical percussion and all this stuff. And I think that moment was, was the first time I was like, shit, that's a, uh, that that's a pop progression that we're listening to right now. You know, that chord progression, yeah. that, that totally being a pop song. And it was, it was that first time where I was like, oh my God, I can do this. You know, have you, yeah, have you wow. had any, have you had any like moments like that um, coming out? Cause it Absolutely. seems like you have a lot of really diverse musical influences. I mean, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. In the, in the early nineties, I was working in a record store in Houston called uh <laughs> blockbuster music. They were like actually re- um, the same company as blockbuster video. Uh-huh. And um they had a big classical section, kind of like a tower records would, you know, back in the nineties or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I was always in charge of it because I was always the only person that knew anything (laughs) about classical music. And this is again, you know, before I went to music school or anything. And uh, I got exposed to a lot of recordings when I was doing this. And in the nineties, I got exposed to a lot of stuff that was going in on in New York. Um, Like the uh, bang on a can. Yeah. And uh, and Scott Johnson with the Kronos Quartet and Dr. Nerve and Nick Dikovsky. And I started listening to this stuff and um, and Steve Mackey as well. Uh-huh. And I was like, th- again, I had that moment that you had. I was like, but people are doing this, you know, in this I this I think this is like something that, that I think I could do, too. That, and it, it provided a door for me to to think that it was possible, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's this, there's a really cool Nick Didkowski piece um, that I heard while I was in, while I was in my masters. It's for cello and percussion. And I always thought it had the greatest title too. It's uh, caught by the sky with wire. And uh, yeah, yeah. It, and it, you know, what, one of my friends was playing the percussion part and I, I was always hanging around the percussion studio at, at at university of Arizona. So I heard it, heard them rehearsing a lot, but uh, yeah. Yeah. Nick Kofsky. I haven't thought about him in a long time. Yeah. He, I had him on one track. Oh yeah. uh, Yeah. Yeah. He's a, I mean, we're, it's great. Cause I mean, back, we're talking like, 
92, 93, you know, and I discovered uh, Dr. Nerve and now Nick and I are friends. You know, it's, it's amazing to me, Yeah, you know, that, uh, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Um, uh, yeah. Another, another connection that happened on one track from working in that record store was when I had a, uh, Todd Levin on, you know, Todd Levin. I don't know. Um, no. Every composer should know Todd Levin. Okay. So, so he, he has one of the most incredible stories and one of the most amazing classical music albums to come out of the nineties ever. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm all I'm right. I'm, so it, I'm, I'm going to go check it yeah. out. Like, I mean, it, to make a long story short, I discovered this, this record came out when I was working at the record store on Deutsche gramophone called Todd Levin deluxe. And it looked like a pop. It looked like a rock or pop record. I was like, what is this? And I put it on and I was just like, I'd never heard anything like it. And so he has this piece on there called Todd Levin. Okay. The piece is called Todd Levin. And every, everybody should know this piece. It is incredible. Okay. This piece. Um, and when I, and then he basically, he dropped off the face of the earth after that album, this album comes out, he just disappears. Yeah. And this is in the nineties still. And like, among my friends, he had this like, I don't know, mysterious status because we all were just blown away by this album, but nobody knew what happened to him, right? Uh-huh. Fast forward, I'm interviewing Michael Torkey for one track, and he mentions Todd Levin. He's like, yeah, I was talking and blah, blah, blah. And I was talking to my friend Todd Levin. And you can hear this in the episode where I talk with, uh, with Michael Torkey. I just stopped him. I don't even know what he was talking about. I just stopped him. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I was like, did you just say Todd Levin? And he said, he said, yeah. And I was like, oh my God. I was like, after the show is done, you have to talk to me about Todd Levin. And he's like sounding all confused. He's like, uh, okay. And through Michael Torkey, I hooked up with Todd Levin finally and did an interview. And it was, it's, it was one of the best interviews on one track. What's so. he been doing? He went, uh, he, he got disillusioned and because his album basically got just torn apart oh, really? by the classical music establishment. And, uh, he actually went into the art world and, um, like the art curation. And I, I mean, he, don't feel sorry for Todd Levin. He's doing fantastically He's doing well. Just he fine. Lives okay. Ride house and, you know, and all, and, and he, he has this famous um art uh, curation business like i don't know what to call it in new york but um yeah should check that out <laughs> wow all right i'm gonna go listen to that episode that sounds awesome so uh, <laughs> uh you you uh you mentioned the names already but if you could uh tell us who we're gonna hear on this recording again yes um so it's me on guitar um paul bro on saxophone alto saxophone uh, Ted Pachinski on accordion and uh, Kurt Fowler on electric cello. All right. This is Rush. <laughs> Thank you. 
Okay, so uh, we come to the last question, the question that I always ask all the composers and artists that come on the podcast. How did you find music as the thing that you wanted to pursue for your life? It was very specific, and I can actually remember the exact moment. Ooh. Um, yeah, I was 11 years old. It was 1984. I was sitting in my dad's recliner and using his uh, Walkman, and I had just convinced my parents to buy me the cassette of Van Halen 1984. <laughs> and I got to the the B side where Hot for Teacher came on, and it, it starts with this like blazing kind of tapping solo. Uh-huh. And right there, I was like, I want to learn to do this. I want to learn to play guitar. And that's Man. that's what started it all. Yeah. Man. I don't I I think I you know the so my my mother uh played guitar uh, you know when she was in college or whatever and I always knew that up in the attic we had an acoustic her acoustic guitar from the 60s and um uh it was a harmony it was awful it could never stay in tune but it was up there Rob. This was my first guitar. A Harmony? This is crazy. Yeah, it was my mom's guitar from the 60s. It was a Stella Harmony. It had strings that were like an inch off the fretboards. You can barely push them down. Yes! Yeah. That was my first guitar, too. Oh, my God. That's crazy. (laughs) That's awesome. So I remember um, getting it down, and I don't know how old I was. Probably, you know, pretty probably pretty close to you know 11 or, or or 12 or something like that because yeah i think i stopped playing baseball around 12 years old because i wanted to <laughs> i wanted to take guitar and, and and get into music and everything like that and i remember i got it down and i had my sister's uh tape of rea- the reality bites soundtrack oh wow which starts off with uh the knack and my Sharona. If <laughs> <laughs> you remember that song. Yeah. And yeah. I remember oh, yeah. just like fake playing the guitar uh while while listening to that. And you know, like my I got blisters and everything because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I was I was <laughs> wasn't putting any putting any fingers down or anything like that. I was just strumming and sounding horrible. But uh but yeah, I think it was uh it was like, you know, this it it's it seemed possible you know, at least yeah. to, um, to learn. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Harmony, harmony, acoustic guitars. <laughs> All right, man. Well, uh, before we go, can you tell people where they can find, uh, more of your music and, uh, where they can find your podcast and your website and all that kind of stuff? Sure. Um, they can find my music, uh, on my website, anthonyjosephlandman.com. Um, you can go to SoundCloud. There's a, most of my recordings are there. SoundCloud.com slash Anthony Landman. And one track is just one track podcast.com um, with the number one instead of one. And also um, whenever the website for uh, that one, this one time at Bandcamp goes up, that's going to be uh, T-O-T-A-B dot X-Y-Z. So like toe tab, T-O-T-A-B dot X-Y-Z. Awesome. Thank you so much for doing this, Anthony. Man, thanks for having me. It was it was cool. I, I love, you know, Lexical Tones is one of my 
my favorites, one of my go-to, and uh, I still really love the the roundtables. That's what prompted me to to invite everybody on because because the first episode of Lexicotones I heard was one of the roundtables. Mm-hmm. I just loved it so much, and I loved you know, all the personalities and stuff. I'm just like, I got to have all them on. <laughs> we definitely yeah. have some personalities. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I mean, dude, likewise, like one track, when one track comes out, you know, I'm, I'm looking and I'm and say, who's, who's this? Oh man, I've never heard them before. I'm listening to that one. You know, like, yeah, it's great. So podcast love. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> all right. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about Adjective New Music or Lexical Tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.